Uh, There's a time, though, now in our service where we are listening to uh, the Word of God as it is preached and proclaimed. Uh, So before we come here to to this time, let's pray. Let's ask that uh, God's Spirit would be with us here, that He would be opening our eyes and helping us to, to listen and to have hearts that receive this Word well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are people who are in need of life. We are people who need to hear what you have to say because it is the word of life. We are people here who need to hear about Jesus because he is the way of life. And we need your spirit to impart his life within us, to renew us, to bring us up from the dead, to to strengthen faith, to impart faith. Father, we pray that as we we hear Jesus being proclaimed here, that it would not just be words about Jesus, but that it would be the truth of Jesus that that would be given to us. Lord, we are receivers, and allow us to have open hands and open ears and open souls and hearts to receive this beautiful word of Jesus. And we ask that he would be more beautiful and more believable to us than when we first came here this morning. Open our eyes to see him with love. We pray this for his sake. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, again, so I've been on vacation the last few weeks here. Uh, we've had uh, Alan Carter being here preaching in my, in my stead. So we're going to be picking, as we're picking up again, let's be reminded about where we are. We're in the Gospel of Mark right now. Today we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 11, verses 27, to, t- to chapter 12, verse 12. And where we are here, just to kind of re- reorient ourselves again as we're coming back into the Gospel of Mark, uh, we've been looking at the, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And here now is, is in his last week on, on, uh, on, on earth before he's going to be crucified. It's his last week in Jerusalem. And here he has, uh, a few weeks ago we looked at him coming in to Jerusalem on the, uh, seated on a donkey. Uh, being exalted as king. Uh, the week after that then, he goes into the temple and he sees all what's going on. He sees all the buying, the selling, the trading, uh, the commodities, the commotion, the animals. And he says, I will make this, this house as a house of prayer. And he casts it all out. Right? He cleanses the temple. And in doing so, he also though confronts the, the religious hypocrisy of the people that, that's going on there. He confronts the greed and the pushing out of the outsiders, because this was happening in the, the court of the Gentiles, where the religious outsiders, the Gentiles, were to have a place to come and to worship. And so now here we come to what's the next day after all of that when it happened. And so with that in mind, this is uh, the word of God beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. 
So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from, from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took it and beat him, or they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Amen. Well, the idea of the dilemma, a dilemma where you are given multiple choices with different outcomes, but none of those outcomes are really preferable to the other's. Maybe an example of this is you have a lifeboat that holds only six people. The lifeboat on a sinking ship, but there are ten people who need rescuing. How do you determine who those six of the ten will be? Well, none of that, there no good answer is preferable there. And the dilemma here is what the religious leaders, the scribes, uh, the chief priests, the elders, it's what they believe themselves to be. And as Jesus counters their question... With, their, with, with his own, when they ask, well, what gives you the right to do these things? And Jesus responds in a way that exposes their hearts, as he does so well, as we've seen over and over in, in Mark here. And he poses a question to them that brings up to the surface their unbelief. And he gives them a counter-question about John the Baptist. He says, well, was John sent from God? Was his preaching and his ministry, was that from God? Or was it just simply from man? Was it something he decided to do? Was it something that was was earthly there? And the answer to that is important because John's ministry, everything that he did pointed ahead to Jesus. The character of John's ministry should have answered the question for these people. He puts the religious leaders in a bind. They face a dilemma. Well, they say, if we say from God, then we have an indictment for not believing. But if we say from man, well, then we're going to lose credibility with the crowds. Here's the thing. Is it really a dilemma? Was it actually a dilemma for them? No more than if that lifeboat there that had six six seats and ten people needing to be rescued actually had an extra four seats that were covered in life vests and other sorts of gear. It's not a dilemma because they simply refuse to acknowledge the obvious answer. The right answer that's right there. It's only a dilemma because of their own stubbornness and their own hard-hearted unbelief. And Jesus sees it and he brings it up to the surface. He reveals their unbelief. And then he addresses it. And he unearths it there with that counter question. 
But he doesn't just leave that unbelief sitting there. He warns them of it. He points to it and he tells them about this, the, the, the peril that they will have if they continue in this unbelief. And he does it with this corresponding parable. Now, in the Christian life, belief and faith is rarely static. It ebbs and flows at various times. There's one constant to faith. There's one constant to belief. And that is the object of our faith. Jesus, the one who is never changing. The one upon who we receive and rest alone for salvation, as we heard in those membership vows this morning. Holding to him as our only hope there. That is the one constant that never changes in faith. But the strength of our faith, though, by which we hold on to Jesus, sometimes that grows, doesn't it? Sometimes it weakens. There's an ebb and flow that goes along with it. There are moments in in life when our belief and our faith is strong. When Jesus seems so near to us and we are so confident in those promises of God for us. But on on the flip side, though, there are other times when our faith grows weak and tired. When our feet are tired and we feel like we're just barely trudging along. When we feel the weight of our failures, when we feel the weight of our sins. When we walk along and perhaps in times of disillusionment. When we ask why, we cry out to God why in times of lament. And yet sometimes also that our faith can be in seed form. There are early times of growth when we're working and trying to understand in those early days or times when we're really starting to come to life, when that faith is beginning to blossom. But if you're in a period of weaker faith right now, or if you felt that before, perhaps you're feeling anxious when you hear these words about unbelief here. You're thinking, am, am I in this sort of unbelief? Well, Jesus isn't talking about times of weaker faith. Because after all, weak faith is still faith. What he's doing is he's addressing a refusal to believe. There might be bits of our struggles to believe at times and when we are trying to to cast ourselves fully upon God. But what Jesus is talking about is an outright refusal to believe, a dismissal of him, not these times of, of doubting. Doubt and unbelief aren't the same thing. After all, doubt still clings to faith. Doubt wants to believe, doesn't it? It's part of wrestling with the realities of faith. And sometimes it's not easy. But unbelief, though, on the other hand, just refuses to, uh, flat out refuses to believe. It willfully dismisses all of it. And there's room in faith for healthy doubt. As we are actually trying to work through who is Jesus in these circumstances? Who is God in the midst of this reality? But that's a lot different than just flat out unbelief. Jesus warns about that because unbelief is a willful failure to recognize Jesus. And these these words of Jesus, though, are actually a grace. See, a warning to not persist in unbelief, but to to consider why you don't believe. And then to see his goodness. He's calling us to recognize unbelief and then to look at him in his goodness. It has to begin with recognizing Jesus, doesn't it? You've got to see him. You've got to acknowledge who he is. See him as beautiful, as good. And that then is what makes you want to go forth and set aside that unbelief and to hold on to him. 
See, proper recognition of him doesn't push him away. Proper recognition of Jesus and all who he is, it welcomes him. It sees in him the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God who has manifest himself and come to us in human form. Recognizing Jesus is to welcome the one who's sent from God. That's our simple point this morning. Recognizing Jesus is to welcome the one who's sent by God. And Jesus unearths belief and he puts it before the religious leaders and he puts it before us to confront us with the reality here and to truly consider who it is that's being rejected and why he's being rejected. And because of that, our first point here is that unbelief in Jesus is never neutral. Unbelief in Jesus is never neutral. Why is there this refusal to acknowledge him? Why do the the religious leaders just not acknowledge who he is there? It wasn't a lack of knowledge. They knew who he was. They understood. These guys were were smart guys. They were steeped in the Old Testament. And they knew all of the reports and everything of what had been happening. They knew that there was something about Jesus, but there was something that they didn't like about him when when they had that revealed, which is why they were perpetually angry with him in the first place. And the reason why they were so angry, the reason why they were rankled here is because it meant if, it was, if he was who he says he, he was, and if they acknowledged it, then it meant that they had to bow the knee. It meant that they had to bow the knee to Jesus. And when you bow the knee to Jesus, it means that you have to give things up. For them, it meant giving up their power and control that they had. It meant giving up their own pride as they were living according to their own self-righteousness. And doing that then would mean that they would have to lie or lay aside all of their prestige, all of their status. They would have to, to lay aside their assumption that the way to God was through them and their ways. See, giving up, see, what this means though is when we give things up is that we are giving up ourselves because we are seeing that we are not actually the arbiters of truth. But rather we are recognizing that God is. And now, now, none of this then here takes a neutral stance towards Jesus. Willful unbelief isn't neutral, is it? It stubbornly holds on to selfish values. It entails a refusal to recognize what's true. And of course, none of that is neutral then, right? You're having to make a value judgment, and it's putting Jesus on the scales. Now, unbelief is always fueled by something. It never exists on its own, just in a vacuum, Anyone and everyone who persists in unbelief does so for certain reasons. Some people have believed that, that, that it's because of a perceived irrationality of the nature of God and the world and just seems so irrational. Right? Or, or the, the idea of, of the, the word of God coming to us just seems so outlandish and they're just going to not believe that. But there are some people, though, too, who do not believe because of a personal experience that they have. Maybe there's been tragedy or loss that they have suffered, either that they've suffered uh, near tragedy or loss, or they themselves have suffered tragedy and loss, and they are upset. Or they are having a difficult time reconciling. How could God be loving in the midst of this? The same way, too, people facing abusive leaders uh, and, and, uh, and other horrible things, other behaviors, from, from people with power in the church, they say, if that's what the church, what Jesus is about, then I don't want anything to do with that. For some, that's an unwillingness to give up their values. 
or because their idea of truth doesn't fit their expectations. What we have to see, though, here is that unbelief always, always involves a real person. We have to recognize that. That must be acknowledged. Everyone who doesn't believe, anyone who's, who has a sense of unbelief, is a real person. Real people with real experiences, real people to be, to be looked at and valued and not just seen as an argument. But at the same time, though, that individual, though, still must acknowledge that their unbelief might, though, on the other hand, be irrational. Right? If they've seen the truth and they've put it aside, and especially with personal experience, that's not dismissing personal experience here, but countless people, though, have want to dismiss God and his word because of the broken experiences that they have gone through. And they look at God and say, well, this whole thing is guilt by association. But missing the fact that God and his word, if you take it seriously, has answers, though, for all of those. It has answers for who God is in the tragedies of life. It has answers for how God is just when people within the church are are unjust towards others. God's word has answers for that, especially if you've experienced pain or tragedy. In fact, it's the irrational part of this and is that it's irrational to refuse to see God's answers and his response to things that are wrong and done in his name. Or irrational to see his response to his promises that he has when he will remake all things and everything that is sad in the world will come untrue. Not everything done in the name of God is truly of God. And pushing away Jesus when Jesus himself has answers isn't the way for us to go. And I want you to take into consideration this morning the nature of the God that we come before. The nature of the God who reveals himself here in his word, that he is a transcendent God, that he is a holy God. He is a God who is other than us, that he is not alike, or he is not like you. He is not like myself. And that's a good thing because if God was like me or God was like you and we could know and understand everything about God, do you think he would actually be God? No, we need to think and reclaim, again, the the beauty and the wonder of the triune God of who it is that we come before, of the God who calls us as his people and the God who calls us together here, of a God who gives, who has a self-giving nature, proven the fact that he gave his son for us, for sinners, for hurting people, for broken people. He is a God who gives, who gives his spirit to continue to be with us and that we are then a people who receive He is a God who redeems and restores, even doing so at the very cost of himself. See, if unbelief doesn't exist in a vacuum, then neither does belief. Belief has real reasons, too, and belief holds to Jesus and his truth because it says that he has the words of life. Friends, I want you to consider his words. Consider the words of Jesus here. Don't just dismiss them. I want you to listen to them with care because it's the very word of God for you. And Jesus then here in all of this, as he's talking with with these religious leaders, further highlighting their their unbelief and and what what it will do to them, Jesus draws a parable to indict them in a very not-so-subtle way because at the end, you see that they're, the Pharisees are upset because they understand that it was about them, verse 12. And, the, and the, the parable goes like this. There's a man who planted a vineyard and he built everything that was necessary for its nurture. Right? He, he plants the, 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 the vines, he tends them, they begin to grow. He builds a fence, 
He digs out a wine press, which was a lot of work because you actually had to dig down and build kind of like a small swimming pool in bedrock. That's a lot of work, all right? He built a storage tower. And we understand as we we look at this parable, what Jesus is, is getting at here is the vineyard is a picture of Israel. You can see that uh, particularly if, if you, another time here, you can look in, in Isaiah 5 and, and God likens Israel to being a vineyard there. And then so who's the vineyard owner? Well, it's God, right? And the point of this part here in the parable is that God's people were established by him. He did it all himself. It was his work when he first called out Abraham out and gave him a covenant promise that he would be his people there, that he would be a father of a multitude. And he continued then to grow these people and he brought them out of, of, of Egypt by a mighty hand in it, or mighty uh, hand and outstretched arm. He continued to make covenants to never leave them. He then continued then to give them kings. He listened to them over and over. He did it all, the hard work himself there. They were formed by his hand. And he intended his people then to flourish. And flourishing for God's people in the Bible is characterized by knowing God, by living in righteousness, in holiness, in justice, doing the things that that, uh, are being shaped by by the, the attributes and characteristics of God. They were given promises. They were given the promise of his presence. Okay, that's what we have there. The, the vineyard, the goodness of this vineyard and its intent to flourish by God, the owner. And then the owner, though, gives the vineyard's care to tenants. The tenants being religious leaders. Intended for them to, 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 to be established for its nurture and its care. Intended to bring about a harvest of spiritual fruit for, for the flourish to be the ones who would actually bring forth the flourishing. That would be working and tending the vines. And the owner then wants the expected fruit of the harvest. And so he sends a servant on his behalf. And what do the tenants do? They take him and they beat him and they send them away. And then so again and again this happens. The owner's like, well, I want the fruit. It's my vineyard. And he sends another one. He gets beaten on the head. Actually, the King James Version says, he break him on the head. I love that. Um, but he, he, uh, they send him away, right? Beaten down. And then he's, they're even killing the servants as they're, they're coming. Worse and worse consequences. The servants there are prophets who are sent by God. That's who they represent in this parable. God, over and over, was seeking for fruit. He was calling the religious establishment to do their job. They were sent on behalf of God, asking about the cultivation of fruit, calling the religious leaders to account, but over and over they were rejected and they were beaten and they were killed. Now, why do the tenants do that? Because of their unbelief. Because of their refusal to believe. Because that they believed that they were accountable to themselves, not to the owner. And so rejecting the servant then was actually rejecting the master. And in real history, that means rejecting the prophet is rejecting God. Until finally then, the owner gets to one last person. He says, well, I'm going to send my, my son, my beloved son. Surely they'll listen to him. What do the tenants do there? They take him, they kill him, and they toss his body outside of the, the fence. Now, why? Well, so there's some assumption that they have that they could take control of the vineyard. And perhaps they thought the owner had died and they thought by killing the heir, then it could be theirs. They're misguided, though, because the owner was alive and well. And it's easy to see who this is, isn't it? It's Jesus. 
And Jesus calls out the religious leaders and their sins of unbelief. And he tells them that this is where it's going to take them. It's going to take them all the way, if they persist in that, into killing him. He calls out the, the evil, murderous plots that are going on in their mind at that very moment. And he's intending it to be a warning to them. What's the reasonable response by the owner of the, of the vineyard? Well, sweep away the tenants. Because they don't care about anyone but themselves, right? And Jesus then continues then to address their unbelief in this parable. And I want to look at second here. The second point is that God shows limited patience and grace in unbelief. God shows limited patience and grace in unbelief. We might want to say the limited part, but what we need to do is focus on the patience and grace. We may want to look at this, at this parable and focus on the destruction part. But if we only do that, we miss everything that leads up to that moment, which is the incredible patience of the owner, right? The first servant is beaten and turned away. And then over and over, the owner sends new servants to go, and they are either beaten and sent away. They're killed. Now, the first time enough would have been enough to, to warrant then his coming and, and their destruction. But he does what's unthinkable. He gives them opportunity after opportunity. He wants to see the fruit. Doesn't that show remarkable patience on the owner's part? See, that's the history of Old Testament Israel. God's grace and his patience to them was the theme of Israel's story. Because over and over, God sent prophets to call them back into following him. And over and over again, they reject him. They were actually beaten and tortured and killed. For generations, though, after generation, he was patient with them despite their unbelief. And his desire, though, is for the vineyard to flourish. He wants his people to flourish. It's his patient intentions here, all at work. He did all the hard work for establishing the vineyard, right? In establishing his people. He did all of the work in redemption. He wants his people to flourish. And that's what happens when we believe. We flourish in faith then. When we hear his word. When we commune with God. And then we blossom. And we grow. And we, we bear fruit. A holiness. Again, these things that God desires are cultivated in our lives. And they come forth. Love. Peace. Joy. The fruits of the Spirit. Patience is waiting expectantly for the desired outcome and not immediately reaching the point of action. It's momentarily putting on hold the response. And like a wise gardener, like a wise farmer, he, God is exceedingly patient. Growing crops requires patience. I know some of you know that. That's why I'm not the best gardener. <laughs> There's an expectant waiting that has to come with it. It requires patience. The growth itself requires patience. Seeing if the methods will work and take hold, it requires patience. And a very long time, a wise gardener will work and watch and be patient, momentarily putting on hold a response, sometimes even perhaps for the whole season. It takes patience to grow things. Friends, God's patient with us. God is patient with us and our sins And he is patient with those who are persisting in unbelief. Now, how patient would you be with someone who refused to acknowledge your existence? How patient would you be with someone who refused to to listen to you or they just ignored you? How patient would you be with someone who didn't call you by your actual proper name and they didn't give you the proper respect that you deserved? 
I have some patience. I have limited patience like we all do, right? I have, my limited patience is shown sometimes when my kids don't listen to me, when they tell me no, when they pretend to know more than I do. I'm patient for a bit, but I have limited patience. But God isn't like me, not in this sense. He's patient. And he doesn't always immediately give what we deserve in that moment. And he continues to call. But see, none of this, though, is an excuse for not listening. Patience doesn't mean that you get a free pass and it's okay to persist in that unbelief or to persist in sin. Patience runs thin, doesn't it? God's patience also comes to an end, but not like me. It doesn't come to an end like me where I finally reach the boiling point underneath and I lose my patience. He's not like me there where he finally can't contain it, but he, he, is, he is so different. When his patience runs out, it's because he's slow to anger and he is given all the time in the world and he just, there's no bubbling forth of the anger that's been welling underneath. It says, the time's up. I've been patient. Uh, God, he refers to himself here in, in Exodus 34 and he sees the, those words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He says, slow to anger. There it is, there's the patience. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, this is also key, who will by no means clear the guilty. See, patience doesn't mean that he willfully lets, or that he lets rebellion, willful rebellion slide by. Which, by the way, is what unbelief is. It is rebellion, it is a refusal to see that God is the one who's sovereign. And that's mutiny, it's rebellion. And patience doesn't mean, the fact that patience exists doesn't mean that it will last forever. Patience just means that God is willing to wait and he's willing to give us some time despite the justice, though, which is absolutely deserved. The thing is, any display of patience, though, no matter how long or how short, any display of patience is gracious. God is gracious for showing patience. And the owner's patience, though, finally comes to an end. God's patience will also. And so I would say this, don't assume that you have all the time in the world ahead of you. Because do you really know how much time that you have? Do you really know that, the answer to that question? But here's the thing that, that you do know. Jesus tells you that he's patient. And he's patient even right now as his word comes to you. And what do you do then when his word comes to you, when it's brought to you? How do you receive that word? You receive it gladly? Do you let it actually pull out and expose your unbelief and you come to Jesus and hold on to him? Or do you push him away? See, Jesus is patient, but how long? The thing is, though, even though he has these difficult words about their judgment, he's still gracious. His warning itself is a grace to them. It says, don't do what you intend to do. Don't go through with your murder plot. The way's still open. The time for welcome and, un, and, and, and putting aside unbelief, it's still available. Now, there's a certain graciousness that comes with the word of judgment, right? I mean, isn't that what his word is to them? He's telling them that he's patient right now. He says, this is a grace that's being shown to you in this very moment. The Lord is gracious, and yet his patience will not last forever. Being offended by his words of judgment, though, fails to see that there are also words of grace. He is cluing us in to what he's going to do. And he says, there's still time to give a response. I'm still here. My arms are still wide open here. My, my, everything is available still for you here. 
What's your response going to be? Is it going to be one of repentance and welcome and love and joy? Or is it going to be one of hardness? If it's one of hardness, though, you're going to miss out on so much stuff. You're going to miss out on so much good things. And that's our third point. Unbelief misses God's grand and new work in Jesus. Unbelief misses God's grand and new work in Jesus. It misses out on the beauty and the grandeur and the amazing things that, that are promised in Jesus Christ. Now in, that, in, this, uh, in the parable, the owner gets rid of the tenants. But what's he do with the vineyard? He doesn't abandon it. He wants to see, he loves the vineyard. He wants to see it flourish. So he gives it to others. He gives it to others who will care for it and others who will cherish it. The others who are committed to its growth. The other ones who will do it out of love and joy for the owner. And Jesus tells the leaders to be careful or else it will be taken from them and given to others. To steward, to, given to stewards and cultivators of the vineyard. Partakers of the vineyard's fruit who will love and appreciate not only the blessings of the vineyard, but the owner himself. And he starts to pull the cover back a little bit from God's grand plan of redemption, which is for outsiders, those who are outside God's people, to be made insiders and brought in. For Gentiles to be brought into God's redemptive plan and brought into, into God's people here. Right? To be made partakers of the promises for Israel. For them to be brought into the vineyard, into God's people, and enjoy all of the gracious promises. To be given all the gracious privileges. And even also to be given leadership and charged with the care of the church. It's a joyful thing. In Acts 13, 48, uh, the Apostle Paul has been going around preaching. And he's preaching in a synagogue and... They're rejected. He's rejected by the religious leaders at the Jewish synagogue. And he comes back again next week and he's preaching again. He says, this is open for the Gentiles there. And it says this in Acts 13. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. See, that's what people who receive grace do. For people who receive grace when they don't deserve it, that's what they do. They begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. What you have here happening is a wholesale transition where outsiders are brought in and belong, where they are given privilege by divine grace, and it's nothing because of their heritage or their birthright or anything else. And maybe we forget about how radical this really is when we talk about Gentiles being included into God's community of, of God's people. We talk about that in sometimes cliche ways, and we, we forget about how radical that really is. Now I want you to think, unless you're Jewish, unless you're fully Jewish, during this time in history here, while this was going on, what were your ancestors doing? Where were your ancestors? And what were they doing? What were your ancestors doing in whatever corners of the, the, of the world they lived in? What were they doing during the time period when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Now think in all of those other parts of, of the world, places where, where, where the, the Roman Empire hadn't even gone, think of all the paganism that was going on, all the wickedness, all the evil, the darkness, the violence, all as a way of life. Now, my ancestors lived in Central and Northern Europe. 
My ancestors during this time, while this was happening, were painting themselves in uh, various colors of blue, and they were going around, and they were killing one another and worshiping trees. Now think about that. What were your ancestors doing at that time? Maybe if you are from Eastern Europe or Slavic nations, what were your ancestors, the Huns, doing? If you come from, have, have Nordic ancestry, what do you think that your Viking ancestors were doing? Oh, they were going around sailing and pillaging. If you have Native American blood within you, what were, what were those who are on Native American soil here doing at that time? They were worshiping fish and the birds. But see, this is what's amazing, that even for people as lost as, as our ancestors were, that they could not tell as at the right hand from the left hand, in other words, they couldn't tell good from right, right from wrong, that Jesus came to save people from those places, from those cultures, from all of those areas, doing all sorts of those things. Now, doesn't that imply awe? Like, doesn't that just like, isn't that mind-blowing to us? Jesus came to make outsiders like them insiders. And if he hadn't done that, where would we be now. We'd be just as lost as they were. So this is a grand new era in God's plans. This is his plan of redemption that's going worldwide. And that means a transition not only of people being included, but it's also a transition in access to God. The way to God, access was to change. It was Jesus was going to sweep away all the old to bring in the, the new and better way. A way that would strip the religious leaders of all of their power and show them what it actually meant or, or show them how they were actually incapable of doing it on their own. That their reliance upon ritual and a law and ceremony all for access of God would actually get them nowhere. Right? Because it's all external. Right? And even the, the best religious practices can't actually go down to the depths of the heart, which is what God desires, right? See, this here, the system that they were following, it was a system given by God himself. The old, old covenant system, the Old Testament system there. But that system, though, had a built-in obsolescence. Have you ever heard of manufacturers' planned obsolescence? What that is, is a product is designed to eventually fail. It's designed to have limits upon itself so that it will inevitably be replaced so that you will go and buy another one someday. Now, the Old Testament religious systems failed because even the best systems, first of all, are led by sinful people, but they also failed because they couldn't actually bring real renewal. It was planned obsolescence by God. It was designed to have limits. The sacrifices, the purification laws, all of this here, they were only provisions that wouldn't actually change the inside. None of that would actually give them real, true, lasting access to God until Jesus comes and he sweeps away the old and he says, there's going to be a new thing that's going to be built upon me. And that's where he quotes, has that quote in verses uh, 10 and 11, which is a quote from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. The imagery here is of a temple stone that is being rejected by the builders. 
Now, the temple wasn't the access place to God. You wanted to get to God, you had to go through the temple. And the religious leaders had their own idea of what would be a good fit there, right? They, had like, they were like a builder, right? They had their own standards according to what they thought, and they were going to fit, see if Jesus was going to fit in that system, if he was going to fit in that temple hole there, right there. Jesus wasn't a, no, that's not what we're looking for. You don't meet our standards. But it turns out to their shame that he actually did. He actually fit in a different place. He fit perfectly because their, their understanding was entirely off. They couldn't read the plans. They didn't see that God had something better in mind. Because he didn't fit where they thought he should fit. He actually fit in the most important place, in the, corner, the cornerstone or the capstone, where everything else would be built around it and or fall in place around him. So that that temple access, access to God himself, puts him as the central stone. All of the sacrifices, all of the laws, all of the rituals that they wanted to follow, they're all summed up in him perfectly. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that forgives sins and atones. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not law by what you do that gives you access to God. It's everything that Jesus has done for you that gives access to God. It's not all of the rituals that you go through. It's coming and loving him with the heart. That's what he desires. And so the old isn't necessary anymore. It wasn't then and it's still not today. Hence there is free access by Gentiles and by outsiders. Friends, we can come to God not because of heritage... Not because of ritual, but because of belief. Not because of practice, not because of ceremony, not because of anything that we want to do, anything that we want to point to as that would make us acceptable to God, but it is belief and trust and holding to Jesus. And it's all because Jesus was, re- was rejected. It's because he was the one who was sent to the cross. He was the, cor- he was the stone that the builders rejected but he fits though. He was put as central because he was raised. And that now there is free access to God for us in Jesus Christ. But that's not all because the temple was a place where the spirit of God was and the spirit is with us. Your home, your belonging with God is with God here. It's all because of Jesus. But this is the thing, coming back to unbelief. If you persist in unbelief, you miss out on all of this out on everything you miss out on all the joy the grandeur seeing the marvelous work that god is doing and all of the worldwide redemption that he is bringing his people into but here's another part of the grandeur all of this was planned by god the father himself says that the stone was rejected but it was the lord's doing see the plan was always god's plan and the crucifixion was no accident it was it was planned by god And here you can see it was foreknown by Jesus, right? But yet still Jesus is holding the religious leaders responsible. Why was he warning them? It's because he's telling them, be careful, put it aside, believe. And he's he's not letting them off the hook for what they're going to do, right? Because in in Acts 2, Peter is is preaching then and he's telling uh, those who, uh, who had crucified Jesus, he says that he was delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God but then he says, you crucified and killed him. He's saying, yeah, it was, this is God's plan, but you also did it. See, God's ordaining isn't an, an out for our responsibility, but rather it gets us to consider the God who we're dealing with, a fully sovereign God over all things. 
And so will you put off belief in this God? Or will you put aside your unbelief and come to him? A God like this, a God who uses the most wicked act in human history, the murder of the Son of God, if he can take that as a means to bring redemption, a God like that can be trusted no matter what time of life that you're in. And that's why the Lord's Supper is good for us. That's why it's food for our faith, as we'll do shortly here. We receive the promises of Christ himself once again. The Christ who lived, the Christ who died, the Christ who was raised for us. The Christ Jesus who was sacrificed, but not as a victim of circumstance. He was the one who came in order to be crucified and raised to deliver us from sin and death and to raise us into new life. Not new life just only in soul, but new life someday in body. And so when we receive the bread and the cup, we are receiving signs and seals of this Jesus himself. And we take them, we eat them. And because Christ is seen in them, It's the ultimate sign of the sovereign God's faithfulness to his people. And even the weakest faith is fed and nourished. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would overcome our belief, our our unbelief. Uh, Overcome our unbelief, Lord God. Some of us might be deeply persisting in it and willfully rejecting you. Maybe it's in subtle ways. Maybe it's been the whole life. We know, though, that you, by your Spirit, are able to show your beauty and grace and that your Spirit can shine the light of your mercy into the human heart so that we might see. Lord, would you do that? And for all of us then who here who might be struggling with little areas of unbelief, would you make Jesus to be, again, more beautiful than he, than he has been before? And that we can, hold, that we can have confidence as we hold on uh, to him that you will never cast us out and that you will strengthen our faith. Jesus is the beautiful stone. He is the cornerstone. He is doing new things. All the newness of life is built upon him. Let us love him and let us do so with a deep joy and an enthusiasm. May he be the central place in our hearts. Would he be seen as marvelous in our eyes? Prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to the table which Jesus sets out for us. I pray this in his name. Amen.